Hello and welcome to the PR Week. PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. I had to remember the intro there. It's been so long, Frank, since I presented one of these. Ably, you have stepped in and most people have agreed it's a much better show with you presenting. Hi. So welcome, Frank Washkirk, executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I have to give the credit to my guest host. Uh, I suppose you don't have to take credit <laughs> mate we're, we're, we're in journalism and pr no you know diana and ewan did a great job they did uh, so great shows well, so. and uh interesting stuff and we've got another great show today we've got ed hammond with us who's a partner at collected strategies a new firm in the marketplace ed welcome to the show we're looking forward to finding out more about collected thank you so much for having me on now, we'll chat to Ed, and then we've got loads of stories to talk about this week. Microsoft has revamped its comms team in response to the focus on AI. Twitter, or should I say X, it's rebranded. Threads, is it unraveling already? And uh, Chipotle did an interesting activation on there. We'll chat about that. John Harris over at ConAgra, he's got an expanded role, another change in the corporate function at a big company, which we've been seeing a lot of recently. And why did an insurance company create a boy band supergroup? We'll find out, listeners. Sad news over at NYU, where comms professor Michael Diamond passed away last week. We'll talk about Michael's legacy, a great mentor to a lot of people. We'll talk about Berlin Rosen and the work they did with the Washington Commanders, the biggest deal in US sports history. And, well, I guess we'll talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer a little bit at the end of the show. But, Ed, let's start with you. You have gone over to the dark side, sir. You were a former Bloomberg and FT reporter, gone to work in PR at Collected Strategies with five founding partners from Joel Frank and uh, starting a new firm. So tell us all about it and what made you make that big leap, From apart from the money? We all know journalists aren't the highest paid people in the world, but um, what was it that made you make the leap? And tell us a bit about the new firm. Well, people keep saying this thing about the dark side, and it's interesting. It sort of supposes that being a mergers journalist is somehow light and, uh, and, and fluffy, <laughs> uh, which I suppose it is at times, but a lot of the time it's, you know, you're dealing um, with much the same material you would being a, a crisis communications person. Um, look, I think, you know, why did I go over? I went over because it was an opportunity to work with a group of people that I really like, really admire, have known for many years, and to build our own firm. And I think all of us felt pretty strongly that the, the most exciting piece of this wasn't, I mean, of course, we're not doing this, you know, to make no money, but we wanted to do it because it was a chance to do something for ourselves, to build our own place, to set our own culture, to, you know, put out there the the sort of ideas and the different ways of doing this work that we thought were interesting and, and are much harder to achieve in someone else's firm. So I think we, we came at it from different industries, obviously me from media and those guys from PR, but I think the sort of ideal that we all um, were interested in and, and, and all came together on is, is pretty similar f- for each one of us. Yeah, it's definitely a world where everybody knows each other, don't they? Whether you're in the media side, the PR side, or even the, the in-house side, um, it's a, it's a, a very well, closely connected world. Well, shockingly, actually, I, I disagree with that. And I think 
that was one of the things that really stood out to me. I knew these guys because they were good at their jobs and they were people who spoke to the press, you know, not just the M&A press, but actually the entire Wall Street press because they realized that to do good work for their clients, it was sensible to have good relationships with journalists. There are so many people in strategic communications who don't really talk to the press, who are either scared of talking to the press or their engagement is entirely reactive it's they wait for the story to be out there their client calls them and says why is this story out there and then they call the journalist saying hey i don't know you but can you do me a favor and put something else in your story you're you're kind of fighting a losing battle there and these guys were the opposite to that they maintained relationships with journalists through peace times which meant when things were bad they had the trust they had the leverage if you like to actually affect a good outcome. Do you think that's changed over the years then? Do you think is, is that a function of, I don't know, I mean, we know newsrooms have got smaller, but the six PR people do every uh, journalist now, so you'd have thought that the, they would be prioritising that. Or do you think the focus on media relations has changed and people aren't putting as much time into it than maybe they should? It's a great question. I Look, I grew up doing journalism in London where I think the sort of relationship between PRs and the press is much... I say cozier and I mean that literally not sort of pejoratively. Um, I just think it was, you know, we spent far more time sort of talking to the PRs and they spent a lot of time talking to us. My experience when I came over here was slightly different. It was a lot of the companies had big, very professionalized internal PR functions. Um, and they would use the agencies really as an extension of that, as opposed to doing sort of their own, you know, relationship building on their own dynamic work. And, has it changed in the 10 years I've been here? I, I don't think materially. I mean, look, the, and again, I think this speaks to why we started Collected. The, the firms that were big when I came over in 2013 are still big now. They've actually just gotten bigger. Um, and some of them, you know, like Saad have gotten even bigger through doing mergers. Um, and, it, you know, it's, um, has the model changed a ton? I don't think so. The personnel are basically the same. Um, and the playbook is basically the same. And all of those things we saw as, you know, that's an opportunity to do something new. And what do you think the folks, your fellow partners at uh, Collected, who all came from Joel Frank, what do you think their motivation was to move out of a great firm? You know, really one of the, the, the classic firms in their space doing great work and has done great work. Um, what was their motivation to sort of make a change? Yeah, the number one firm. I, I know that because I saw on their LinkedIn last week that they are the number one ranked firm across many different things. Um, look, I think all of them had spent the bulk, if not their entire careers at Joel. So it's it's really in their DNA. And I think, you know, one of the things we're very keen to do at the new shop is is to transport over those best practices and that experience into into what we're doing. But again, they, you know, Joel is a fantastic firm and we have nothing but admiration for what they've achieved, but it's not their firm. And this was an opportunity to build their own place with their own ideas and their own culture. And, you know, it, it's, I think that is different. I think also in, in, in doing this, they get to choose who they work with, not just in terms of clients, but in terms of colleagues and partners. And I think that's tremendously important. I mean, it sounds a kind of soft, um, a soft point to make, but we do really like each other. I mean, this is a group who we know each other well and the harmony in building this thing has been tremendous. And since we started, although obviously still in our infancy, it's just a great group to work with. We all get along sort of famously well. And I think even though obviously there's going to be stresses and I'm sure there'll be hiccups along the way, we like each other and that, that counts for a tremendous amount. 
Yeah, so there are six of you and there isn't a CEO. So how's that going to work? That that has the potential for, well, what happens when you have to make a decision and it's three, three, three? Uh, who makes the final casting vote? Yeah, so we, we kind of are trying to keep as as much as possible. And so far, I think we have a 100% record on this. We, we want sort of full... Um, you know, we want everything to be unanimous. So when we decide something, it's because all of us have decided it's the right thing to do. Now, is that a sort of indefinite proposition? Probably not. There will be times where I'm sure we diverge and that's that's healthy. Um, we didn't want um, sort of one person to be identifiable as the person in charge, which was, you know, I think one of the big reasons we didn't put any of our names above the door. We, we want to build a great firm and we want that firm to have a legacy that can be passed on to, you know, people who aren't us eventually. And, you know, we, we all have, I think, fairly discrete skill sets and therefore all bring something slightly different to the, to the firm. Um, you know, from my own point of view, I was, and, and this was the same as a journalist, I was always much better as a, um, you know, if you like a, an operator and not good at managing people as a journalist, you know, despite having quite a lot of experience, I never ran a team. I was, you know, the senior M&A reporter at Bloomberg, but I was never in charge of other journalists because I recognized early on in my career that that wasn't something I was good at. I was not good at telling other people do this and this is how we should do that better. There are other people in our group who are very good at that. Um, so I suppose naturally, internally, I could look at them and say, well, they're more like a boss and I'm like a boss, at least as you sort of would think about it. Um, but yeah, we, we're very happy with the structure of, you know, we make decisions as a group. Um, and so far that has been, you know, that's got us to where we are today and, and has been a very successful model. Yeah. So what, what's the reaction been from the market? You now you can get out there and talk openly. Uh, you couldn't really go and test the waters beforehand because word gets out pretty quickly. It's a very uh, small community. So what's the reaction been? What's the sort of uh, client work that you can you I don't know how much you can talk about that but tell us tell us a little bit how the last few weeks has been yeah well look I think anyone who has has done something like this where you spend a sort of a, a huge amount of time working you know in the shadows of secrecy and then you're able to bring something into the light it's that in itself is a tremendously rewarding experience because you kind of get to see you know all these things you kind of make assumptions about and you think well this is our best case scenario, worst case scenario, and we'll probably end up somewhere in the middle. Then you get to kind of actually put the thing out there and see how people respond. And I think, look, we were extremely excited with the launch. I think it would be ridiculous if we weren't. We got really good press coverage around it. We had a lot of nice feedback sort of immediately. Um, and I think, you know, all of us have pretty good relationships and good networks of people that we've worked with over many years. And so far, the, the feedback has been, I think, exceptional. People have been very positive about us doing this. I think people admire the kind of entrepreneurial piece of it, but they also recognize that, look, this is an industry where you have a small number of pretty big firms who have been doing it quite a long time, and it's nice to have a new entrant in this space. And I don't think that's a sort of a diss on any of the other firms. It's just recognizing that, look, this is, this is an industry where there is an opportunity to do something new. There is an opportunity for someone to come in who, you know, is a is a new player in that market. And I look at something like what happened in investment banking where you had, you know, there was a period of time sort of 15, 20 years ago where a lot of boutiques came out of the big investment banks. And it wasn't because, you know, if, if you look at someone like Walt Taubman at PJT, he didn't start that firm because Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were not good. He started that firm because it was an opportunity to do something 
in addition to what they were doing. And that's basically how we looked at it. And I think that's basically how it's been received. And that's, you know, it's been very validating. Are you picking up work? And what sort of work is it? Are they starting you off with projects or have you got some bigger relationships already under your belts? Um, we are getting work and we already have some, some work signed up. Uh, it is, so I think the relationships um, are hopefully going to be sort of, you know, the work is going to be a byproduct of the relationships. And, and I think that was always how I thought about it as a journalist and always what I told other journalists who were doing that that job that I did that, look, if you have good relationships and you maintain them and you're straightforward and trustworthy, you'll get scoops. And I think the same is true of this work. If you're, you know, someone who people like to work with and you're trustworthy and smart and thoughtful, um, you will get work. So I think the relationships I'm very confident in, the work is beginning to come in. For me, this piece of it is completely new. So I'm really, you know, the least experienced person in our entire firm and I'm on the learning curve because winning, you know, winning work is, there are similarities to, to getting stories. You know, you have relationships and those people say, okay, well, I have something I can, you know, work with Ed on and, and they come to you. But actually servicing clients is something I've not done before now. I'm very lucky because the five partners are, all extremely experienced at that and are very, very good at it and have done it for many, many years. And so are the junior people in the firm. So there is a huge amount of sort of, you know, intellectual capital that has has done that work, knows how to do it, and are sort of kind enough to put up with my occasional questions about what does this mean? How do we do this? And yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing how it turns out. I mean, one thing, well, there was one comment when, you know, the story went live. It, it is, you said guys, it is six guys. How... What's the aspiration moving forwards in terms of building the team and making it maybe a little bit more representative of the whole population? Yeah, um, it's it's something we're obviously aware of um, and thought a lot about. And I, I agree, we, we want to build a great firm and we will build the, the firm that, you know, is, is sort of right for what we're trying to do. And I think that's going to mean hiring the best people. And there will be lots of people we hire that do not look anything like us um, and you know, hopefully the work will support the opportunity to build it into a bigger and bigger team. And um, yeah, I mean, watch this space. And if we meet up in 12 months, where would you want to be? What's the aspiration? What's the business planning looking like? So I think some of that will be determined by the, you know, the the way the markets react. Um, the M&A market has been pretty depressed now for coming on a year. Um, and obviously we, we would like to see a pickup in that. I think from the conversations I've been having, and that goes back to conversations I was having as a journalist, it sounds like that is improving and there is going to therefore be a better pipeline of work. Come back in a year and see where we are. I think, look, we, um, we want to be there to work with the clients. We want to build long-term relationships. And obviously we're at the kind of the, the start of that process. So I think if you come back in a year and we have a bunch of retained work and companies that say, these are our guys, these are the people we like working with, um, then it's a success. And, you know, a year is a very short time in, in terms of starting a new company. So I hope if we come back on in a year and have this conversation, there will be still a tremendous amount of growth that we can do. Yeah, well, we will, we will, we will do that. We will get, get you back in and uh, find out how it's going. But congrats on the launch. And it's, it is uh, always interesting to see a new name in the space. So uh, we're going to plot that carefully and we'll get Ed's uh, input into some of the stories we're going to chat about. Frank, one of the things we've been covering a lot is the way companies are structuring their internal comms teams. And one of the biggest companies in the world, Microsoft, uh, Frank Shaw, one of 
regular guest of ours on the podcast. He's revamped his team to reflect the sort of development of AI, both as AI generally, but also obviously with Microsoft's unique perspective on that. Yeah, and I think a lot of... uh the peers of, of Frank Shaw at Microsoft are going to be looking at how they have done this and um, the impact that it has on the rest of the comps team. And what they've essentially done is created a team within a team that is exclusively focused on helping the comms organization figure out AI, what it means for the discipline, what they can use it for, what they should be careful about, and and all of those things. Uh, it's uh, Steve Clayton. He's a VP of comms strategy. It's his team. It's 10 staffers. They report to Shaw. Uh, he's the former VP of public affairs. Clayton is. Um, and they're supporting... You know, Microsoft across the board, but especially the comms team with with um, talking about the cutting edge AI tools and resources. Um, and Clayton is also going to be an evangelist for AI across the company and, and a spokesperson uh, for what it can be useful for. And I think this is really smart because it's it's uh, the consensus out there seems to be that it's a wait and see. Right now, people are looking to see how other companies are using it. They're waiting to hear how agencies uh, are using AI. And I, I think Microsoft is looking to be a trailblazer in this area, both in terms of its, its broader business and uh, their comms team is reflecting this. So I think it's a smart move. Yeah, it is interesting. Ed, I'd love to get your views on this story in a couple of ways. One on AI generally, but also who's your client? You know, are you, is it the CCO? Is it the CFO, the CEO, or is it a mixture of all those people in the C-suite? I think it could be any of those people or all those people or many other people in the firm. It could be the IRO. It could be the internal communications person. It could be you know, that were referred by someone on the board who introduces us to those people, or it could be another outside advisor. So I think, you know, the the sort of the opportunity of who is a client is a, is a fairly broad one. Um, about AI generally, I mean, goodness. Because I, 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 Bloomberg was pretty, uh, you know, they've been using AI yeah. in journalism for decades. Yes, they, they have. They have. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure I would think of it as sort of generative AI. Um, it's fairly kind of, you know, it takes a... a earning statement and scrapes the kind of salient facts that an algorithm might trade on and spits them back out. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bloomberg, obviously, look, it's a tech business and it's spending and has been spending for months now, like a lot of time on figuring out how is AI going to affect it? What can it do to harness it? Um, and it's something that, you know, the company did, and I assume still does, and a very good job of keeping its employees sort of up to date on where it sees AI going, how it's going to threaten the industry, how it's going to change the working practices and and also what the opportunities are. Because I think that's the, you know, that's the oft missed piece of the whole AI discussion is that, yes, it's going to bring about, you know, in some industries, profound change and others probably less. Um, But it's also going to bring about huge opportunities. It's not just going to be this, you know, thing that takes take, right that takes everyone's jobs away actually and and i look at something like social media where i remember you know when i started as a journalist and social media was sort of beginning to get going there was this narrative that it was going to completely destroy traditional media that it was going to facilitate all kinds of different journalism that had nothing to do with the journalism i had trained to do and actually it hasn't it's you know it's given the media traditional media another sort of platform to communicate through it's also become a source of gazillions of stories. I mean, without 
Twitter, there wouldn't have been the Elon Musk deal and there wouldn't have been Elon Musk as a sort of story. And, you know, you just look at the number of headlines he generates. Yeah, well, we're just about to get onto that. And that's very much where Microsoft's coming from. And Frank Shaw, I think, we're looking at the potential of AI, obviously, from a selfish point of view. But that's very much the lens through which Frank looks at it. Let's chat about social media, Frank. There's a new new name in town, X. It's no longer, is it, Twitter? Are we tweeting or Xing? I don't know. Are we are we X men and women? Are we X people? What's what tell us about what what's gone on and what, well, what, I'm it, still what calling, it means. I'm still calling it tweeting, and that's gonna be a tough habit to break, <laughs> and I think for a lot of other people too. Um, and I think people are gonna continue to call it Twitter for a while. X does not have the same kind of roll off your tongue thing to it, does it? It's not the same. It, no, it it's does, really not. It, it's impactful, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, we do we do cover branding to a degree as well. And there's uh, the lack of bird is is it's noticeable and it's it's a bit weird. Yeah. So what are we going to do on our articles? We've had to think about things like that, haven't we? Do we have that little bird icon at the top when you're going to re- reproduce an article or and most media owners have kept it at the moment? Yeah, it's um, most most have. And um Look, there's a lot of moving pieces to the story, isn't there, right? So, number one, he's Elon Musk is saying X is going to be the, the, the everything app, and it's going to be a financial app and a payments app and, and um, a media ecosystem in and of itself and all of these different things. And I think the first question you think of is, is okay, well, who's going to build all of this stuff since he's fired so many people at the company? Well, even the person who did the rebranding uh, was posting on social that right. he'd been let go <laughs> straight after the launch and he was open for office. Right. So it raises a lot of questions beyond, you know, uh, what Twitter was in and of itself. Um, obviously, there's a lot of brand safety questions. You know, we were talking earlier about a lot of the hesitance that, that brands have had to get back on there and how much they're cutting ad prices and Elon not helping himself by, by you know, just tweeting speculation about LeBron James' son yesterday. I'm sure that turned off you a lot of people. You mean Xing speculation. Xing, excuse me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yes, it's going to take some getting used to. It really is. But, you know, I, I can't imagine there's a lot of smart CMOs that are, are looking at something like that and being like, boy, I can't wait to be back on this platform. <laughs> so I, I just have so many questions and only time is going to tell about what what can actually be built on top of the Twitter infrastructure right now, because there's less of a Twitter, formerly Twitter infrastructure than there was a year ago. Mm. So who knows? So we'll see. There was also a slight sort of Machiavellian sort of, we want to engage with you advertisers. We're going to cut prices. But if you don't spend a certain amount of money, this could happen to you on our platform. It won't be as as safe, which again, that's not a message that brands want to hear or an environment they want to hang out in. No, it's a real, real message of, you know, nice account you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, isn't it? So um, Extortion. Extortion. Oh, my word. Right? Here we go. We can- <laughs> so um, but one story we did. You heard it here first, folks. One story we did cover this week is that Chipotle uh, is getting active on Threads, which, of course, is the meta competitor to uh, X. Uh, and for National Avocado Day, uh, they gave fans a chance to win tickets to a live music event of their choice, which I think is smart because it's the summer, it's festival season, it's concert season. Uh, so, you know, they're tying into the, the, the summertime part of it. And it, it look, we're going to be checking to see how brands are embracing this platform or not, or if they 
start to ignore it. If, if threads unraveling, Frank, you know? as the uh, <laughs> obvious headline on on a PR Week article was uh, there recently. Yeah, it's all interesting, isn't it? I mean, the context of this and the history is that obviously Elon had a business called X way back in the right. day, which was um, a financial payments business, which he sold, which which sort of ended up being PayPal right. and um, sold for a vast amount of money and helped him establish uh, himself as a, as a business businessman and someone with a lot of money to uh, invest and do things with. He then bought that URL back, that domain back from uh, PayPal. And uh, so you got to wonder, I don't know, Edgy must have covered Elon and his businesses over the years. What's your take on him generally and this this latest move, which, uh, you know, it's... He turns on a dime, doesn't he? He makes some incredible decisions and he's been incredibly successful. Yeah, he he has. Um, I wrote something about him six weeks ago, I want to say, um, basically making the point that he, he, and this is not a particularly novel point, but he operates outside the sort of normal realm of rules and, and um, responses that apply to everyone else. And my argument was that he should take Twitter public because it it is, uh, at least from, from the outside in any sort of normal business sense, it has been a train wreck since he, since he acquired it. Um, but... He has shown himself a master at kind of harnessing support for anything that is contrarian. And if he took it public, I'm sure he could get a lot of people who would buy the shares on the basis that like, yeah, like everyone, all these so-called experts are saying it's terrible, but actually, you know, Musk is smarter than all of them. And he may be right. He's the ultimate expert. Um, (laughs) Do you think there's any, either of you on this one, I think one of the differences between the, the, gigantuan sort of social networks in Asia, like Tencent and some of the others, they had that e-commerce element at the end of it. So there was that last step from networking and social networking to, to commerce, to business. That's never quite happened in the US. You know, um, Facebook has tried it a bit and, you know... Um, well, I think it's because Amazon already exists. So it's- Yeah, so they would like have Amazon as part of the same environment. Right. With the social but, part. But Amazon is so dominant that it would be, I mean, it, it conceivably, I suppose it could happen the other way where Amazon could back into sort of social media. But I, I, I'm, I mean, under this. Well, they have Twitch. They have Twitch, right? I suppose that counts. Um, but I think under this um, antitrust administration, they're not going to be able to buy anything significant that would give them that presence. So wouldn't wouldn't they also have to make the case that you, you should be using this app? Like you should be used, like I can send people money via iMessage with, you know, very easily. I mean, who's, who's to say this app is actually going to be easier than that? Yeah. I mean, they'd have to go out and make that case, wouldn't they? Yeah. He's not, who knows what his end game is with it. I'm not sure Musk ever has an end game. I think he's a sort of constantly evolving, you know, yeah. set of ideas. That's one of the things that makes him so compelling that he's not, there's not something he's ultimately trying to achieve. He is just always thinking about, well, you know, how can I change this? How can I improve this? How can I, maybe in the case of Twitter, break this? Mm. And he has the wealth to be able to do that. So he he can he can suck up the losses that uh, are being, um, you know, sustained by that business. And uh, if it was a sort of just a 
a way of getting rid of some an environment that some people regarded as just a, a hangout for woke people, which and they see that as a an egregious thing. Then uh, he's uh, he's he's certainly achieving that. I don't know. And what do you think of Thread said? Because yeah, it had a fantastic. I think everyone just went there and signed up because they were like, well, it isn't Twitter, right? Um, you know, Facebook has its own issues. I was just in Europe. Uh, nobody's got Threads over there because of data protection laws, and they're not. You know, there's no real plans now to to be able to launch there because it's too difficult well that, that that's a long-term weakness isn't it for a, for any social network so do you see that as a as a, a credible environment and and it's is this where i mean in terms of the type of work you're doing i suppose you shareholder activism and and sort of uh social media crises and what have you, you you've got to be on top of all this stuff as well in that in that space even though it's you are at the higher end of the market there yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think being at the higher end of the market should preclude you from being very engaged on social media as a as a communications firm. I think, you know, this this idea that social media is a sort of distraction, which has been an idea that's prevailed for years, um, is 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 sort of no longer workable. I mean, the, the interplay between social media and traditional media is is vast. Every time an activist goes on social media and says something, it gets picked up by the news wires and the newspapers and they write about it. And then, you know, so social media is kind of leading the agenda a lot of the time. And, and our view on it is, you know, we're never going to tell a company, oh, we can control your narrative on social media because social media is is too wide and also evolving too quickly to ever do that. But I think we are in the conversation, you know, and, and that's where we see the key. We have to be part of the conversation. We have to be engaged in these platforms. We have to know sort of what is being said and what is, you know, where the opinions are forming. And that way you have a shot at having some influence and having some say. The the idea that a big communications firm can just sort of sit out social media, I think is farcical. Um, but on the Twitter thread thing, or X thread thing, I should say, it's hard to say that with a lisp. Um, I think it, it's quite sad that it's become this, you know, uh, sort of fight between Musk and, and uh, Zuckerberg, and that's that's how it's being portrayed. I mean, these, after all, are sort of hugely important social tools. Um, and, and I don't say that lightly. I think, you know, in the West, we have the luxury of having, you know, a, a sort of wide free press, but that's not the case everywhere. And Twitter has shown itself to be a, an, an amazing, you know, route through which people can air opinions, can read opinions, can, you know, engage in thinking that they might otherwise not be able to do. And and to sort of reduce this whole idea of these platforms to being about sort of two, you know, quite quirky tech billionaires. Duking it out in duking the uh, MMA ring. Yeah. Right. Is I think is 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 a bit depressing. Yeah. Um and uh, threads may well end up as a toxic place to be. It's quite nice at the moment still, isn't it? So let's enjoy that bit while it lasts and we'll come back to those topics, I'm sure. Another interesting change, Frank, at a corporate team and it's Conagra's John Harris, one of our Hall of Famers. He's got an expanded role. That's right. He is now going to be EVP and Chief Communications and Networking Officer. So that's an upgrade from uh, Chief Communications Officer uh, for John Harris. He is going to continue to report to the President and CEO of Conagra, Sean Connolly. Um, so uh, he's been at Conagra since 2015. It was previously Conagra Foods. Um, and he sees this as an expansion of the role to make sure the company and its brands are connecting 
with all kinds of different stakeholder groups, um, you know, really articulating all of the different things it's doing um, as a company, you know, whether ESG or, or different types of efforts that are related to the environment or things related to uh, for shareholders. So congrats to John on that. Interested to see what he does with the role. Yeah, and we will have John as part of our conference, PR Decoded, in Chicago um, on October the 11th and 12th. John's going to kick us off in the afternoon with a fantastic session and get everybody uh, engaged and ready for a great uh, day and a half together. So we look forward to that. Ed, are you seeing um, comms teams restructure? Because we've seen, certainly through COVID and post-COVID, it seems like communications and reputation has a higher um mark on this agenda of, of CEOs, they realize the importance of it if they didn't before. And, you know, the organ, they're, they're tweaking the organizational structures. Are you seeing that? In, in, is that a bit of a trend for you? I think certainly. Um, I think your point is exactly right. Messaging, you know, if companies weren't already highly aware of the importance of messaging, they became acutely aware through COVID because obviously there was so much that you could get wrong if you said the wrong thing. And you know, your customers or your employees thought you were doing the wrong things. And so I think there has been some restructuring. And I, I think the other piece of it, and it may be sort of less um, apparent from the outside, is that there's been restructuring around internal comms, the way companies talk to their employees. Because, you know, COVID and and all the uncertainty it brought, I think, created an environment where companies really needed to re- sort of reassure their employees, not just about the status of their jobs, but about a wide range of social, environmental and and health issues. And, you know, certainly my experience working at somewhere like Bloomberg, which is a large sort of well-oiled corporate, they did a fantastic job of that. I mean, there was a lot of communication, there was a lot of help on offer for people who needed it. Um, And I think a lot of big companies have have followed that. As I say, on the outside, we don't necessarily see that. But just anecdotally from talking to people working at firms, whether they're working in the communications departments or whether they're just employees, that has become a much bigger part of sort of day-to-day corporate life. Yeah, absolutely. Employee engagement, a big growth area. Um, Frank, why is an insurance company creating a boy band supergroup? That is my question question. to you this week, sir. That's a great question. So it's CSAA Insurance Group, uh, working with a range of agencies to bring back stars from various 90s boy bands. And, um, yeah, so what they're trying to do here is uh, they are jumping off their previous 2022 campaign uh, that featured Rick Astley. Uh, And so they're kind of trying to recreate the magic of that by leveraging nostalgia uh, and speaking to consumers in a unique way. It's it's an interesting idea. I'm uh, I'm not totally sure it hits the mark. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what they're trying to do and really promoting insurance. But, uh, you know, yeah. Well, check out the case study, <laughs> listeners, yeah. and tell us what you think. It's um, it, just thinking about it creatively. It's, I'm I'm also probably not the target audience for this, to be fair. So, um, but the campaign videos generated more than two million views and more than seven thousand engagement engagements through paid and organic search, according to go. the campaign. And they're talking of Rick so Astley. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Rick Astley, so. what a guy to, who's reinvented himself in the. You know, he really has. My, the, my brother yeah. runs a wedding catering firm in Cheshire, and he used to have Rick. Castley doing his doing wedding gigs like 10 years ago. For, no kidding. And it was, yeah. 
And he was great. Obviously, everyone loved him. All right, some sad news. Uh, NYU uh, comms professor Michael Diamond sadly passed away um, last uh, recently, Frank. Um, and tributes um, coming in from a well-regarded guy in the industry. Yeah, this uh, this is really sad news. Um, he was most recently a clinical assistant professor of integrated marketing and communications uh, in the professional study school at NYU. Uh, he passed away on July 13th, uh, too early at the age of uh, 57 after a year-long battle with cancer. Um, I, he, he previously taught at Baruch, which is part of the city university system in New York, and, and Michael was really well-known and really respected uh, around not just the, the CUNY schools, but I think around um, colleges in New York City. Uh, really well-known, well-respected guy. And you, you would often hear... Uh, professors at different institutions say, oh, you know, if you talk to Michael Diamond about this and, you know, what does he think about this? So really uh, a tough one to write about, a tough one to edit because he's really really well-liked guy and well-respected. Yeah, and um, a good friend of PR Week, so I have thoughts with his family and, and friends and colleagues over there. Let's talk about this big uh, U.S. sports deal, Frank. Berlin Rosen was involved in the Washington Commanders. It's being billed as the biggest deal in U.S. sports history. Yeah, it is. And um, the Commanders are being taken over by um, private equity billionaire Josh Harris, uh, who also owns uh, controlling stakes in the 76ers, the Philadelphia 76ers, the NBA team, uh, and the NHL's New Jersey Devils. Now, this is a, a more than $6 billion deal. Um, it's the biggest uh, acquisition of a U.S. sports franchise uh, in history. Now, uh, this was a really interesting story because if you're, if you're an NFL fan, you know that uh, when Dan Snyder owned the Washington Commanders, formerly known as the Redskins, uh, you know, the tenure was just a disaster, both on the field and off the field, uh, you know, including recently an investigation into sexual harassment allegations um, at the team that resulted in a $60 million fine uh, from the NFL. Um, so um, Har- the Harris group uh, that now has a controlling interest in the commanders, I mean, they they're going to have to work to establish trust. Uh, with the fan base and with, you know, the Washington, D.C. area in general. Um, and I think they're off to a good start working with Berlin Rosen on this. And uh, one way they do this, they, they took out ads in full page ads, uh, letters to the fans in the Washington Post, which is also it's a signal because the previous ownership of the uh, commanders and the Washington football team had a had a terrible relationship with the local media. Uh, and so obviously they're trying to repair this as well. Um, I, I hope they're successful in doing this because if you've ever spent time in DC, you know, that it is, it is a real football town. Um, you, people love the team there and they haven't had a lot of success since, uh, the early nineties. So, uh, it would be, it would be good if he could really reinvigorate that, um, because it's, it's really one of the, the classic historic franchises in the NFL. So. Yeah, Good luck I remember to when uh, NFL was just being started to be shown in the UK and uh, it was probably the last time they won the Super Bowl. So, um, yeah, it's a, been a troubled team over the years, hasn't it? So uh, what, what was your take on that deal, Ed, from a professional point of view and maybe a sporting one? I would like Arsenal to be worth that much. <laughs> I, would like our, I would like our transfer budget to, to reflect that kind of valuation, certainly. <laughs> um, look, I, th- I think, um, you know, 
Josh Harris is 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 on an absolute tear when it comes to kind of sports deals at the moment, and has been building up a phenomenal portfolio on his own, but also with uh, David Blitzer. And you know, look, it's it's the the point about being engaged with the fans through the local media is 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 such an important one, and it's it's something so many owners seem to get wrong. Not just here, not just in football, in in all sports, and in in all countries, it seems to be the case as well. And it's it just is such a losing proposition. You know, people start like that. It can be, you can be antagonistic to the fans and it goes on a while. And then eventually owners always find it intolerable and end up selling either for less than they wanted to or earlier than they intended to. And it just, it, it, it's always staggering that people don't put more time and effort into getting that right. So um, this is $6 million deal. What did Newcastle go for out of curiosity? That is a very good question. It was not that much, but then there are also other things going on there, like yeah. they're selling a player to a Saudi club and the player's value may be so maximum, or not. Yeah, yeah I don't say maximum. Um, so he's only 26 and he's going to... Right, exactly. Um, well, the Glazers want to, are holding out for $6 billion, uh for United, it seems, aren't yes. they? So uh, Holding I'll, out is the right way to express it, though, because they have been in process for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously that's the biggest club in the world. So you know that's the bellwether, isn't it? Is it not Ed, for uh, what a club is worth these days? <clears throat> well, I, I guess it has to sell to have the moniker of the biggest <laughs> club in the world, or the title of the biggest club in the world, I should say. I mean, certainly league position would suggest otherwise. Um, although they did win some kind of cup last year, so yeah, yeah, they did, and um, they're playing the other. Uh, potential biggest club in the world tonight, actually, Real Madrid in a pre-season game. But anyway, as we speak, we were going to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer, but I think we'll leave that to another week uh, on the grounds that neither myself and Frank have seen the film yet. And um, well, I, I have seen Oppenheimer. Oh, you've seen Oppenheimer, I have, right? And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> no, I was talking more about Barbie, and yeah. um, I don't we, have that expertise. Sadly. We have some experts on the news desk, but it's a cultural phenomenon, and I yeah. feel, and we have actually got um, Catherine Frymark who's head of comms at Mattel coming on the show in a few weeks. So we'll really have a Barbie special there. But uh, Ed, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much and wish you well at Collected and uh, in the PR world uh, on the other side of the coin. So uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Frank, always a pleasure. Good to be back with you. Um, don't forget the PR Week Awards are open for entries. It's a special set of awards, the 2024 iteration, because it's our 25th anniversary awards, and we've got some special categories to celebrate that. So check those out and make sure you get your uh, entries ready. Today, we also launched our Best Best Places to Work initiative. So if you want to register for that, please do check that out. 40 under 40, that is going to be, the event is going to be on the 26th of October in New York City, and we will be announcing the uh, honorees in August. And then, as I mentioned before, we've got our Purpose Awards and our PR Decoded Conference in Chicago in October, October the 11th and 12th, biggest event of the year. It's going to be great. Do make sure you've got your tickets. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.